Rolling. Rolling. Hey, I'm Jonah, joined by Brad. How's it going, Brad? Oh, it's going well. I'm very busy these days. Which yeah. Is why I never sit in on podcasts except for this one. Brad did sit in on this one, which I'm so glad that you did, actually. It was pretty interesting. Yeah. So today's guest on the podcast is Chris Barron from The Spin Doctors, who I met um, through our friend Seth Herzog at a show and was like, dude, you have to do my podcast and basically just harassed him over email and Twitter for a few months and basically forced him into coming in. Yeah. Worked. It did work, yeah. Persistence usually pays off, I feel like, in these types of situations. Um, but yeah, I thought it was like a really, this is a really cool conversation. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad I sat in on it because we had some things to talk about. And- yeah, we talked a lot about Spin Doctors, their success, kind of the aftermath, what it was like just kind of playing around the East Village when they were coming up. I mean, I didn't realize that they were such like a, you just see a band on MTV and you're just like, Oh, this is a new band, but it seemed like they really gigged a lot. Yeah, no, I used... It's funny because in the early 90s, when I first moved to Manhattan, I lived right down, like, the road from Wetlands. And that's kind of where they got their start, Wetlands, which is over by the Holland Tunnel. Um, It was kind of a hippy-dippy joint, although... We later played there, and then see. Yeah, I like, knew it as just like a hardcore club. I know well, that was later. I never it was went totally there. Totally a hippie club in the beginning. That's so like, interesting. Like when those guys started, it was them and Blues Traveler every freaking other week there, and yeah, Wetlands. It was like a cool place to see bands. It was great for hardcore because it had low stage, and um, it was just like it was kind of a good setup. But that was totally later. It totally it started off totally hippy dippy. Interesting. Um, yeah, man. But yeah, so now Chris does a lot of solo stuff, and um, tomorrow, tomorrow, April 16th, this is being released the morning of the 15th, he's playing, if you're listening to this, he's playing at the Rockwood Music Hall, stage three, at 8.30, so go check him out. He plays a bunch of different stuff, and he's playing two days later, the 18th, at the Turning Point in Piermont, New York, at 6 p.m., and um, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at the Chris Barron. Two R's for rock and roll, <laughs> as he said, which no one ever forgets, which is and true. You could probably go buy one of his T-shirts, which are really well printed, I hear. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> oh, Brad. <laughs> yes. Um, his T-shirts are great, I'm sure. I'm not sure if he uses Commonwealth Press. I'm sure he does. He probably does. Everyone does these days. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, they were nice enough to sponsor a few episodes of Going Off Track. And if you go to commonwealthpress.com slash podcast... You can get six free shirts with your order. That's so, six free shirts. That is six free high quality shirts. Or half a dozen. Or half a dozen. Whichever you would prefer. <laughs> so check out Commonwealth Press. Um, check out Chris Barron. He also mentioned that he's going to be releasing stuff kind of online, his solo stuff. So um, keep an eye out for that. And yeah, enjoy this interview with Chris Barron of the Spin Doctors. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna make a I was gonna make a pun and then I just decided I would not for once I would not do it. So just listen to him. Okay. It's going on <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Steven I, I used to have a show for Fuse called Steven's Untitled Rock Show. Uh-huh. And Steven and me started doing the podcast together, but he has twins now, but he actually lives in Princeton Junction. That was such a weird place to live. Um, yeah, he was in the East Village forever, and then when he had kids, moved out there. And That's so, so funny. Princeton Junction is like, you know, it's it's like, well, it's probably more built up now and a little bit more like residential. 
But when I was a kid, it was like, you know, the train goes from New York to Princeton Junction, and then you take the dinky train, this little bitty train that goes um, four miles or something into into Princeton and stops like right next to the university. Okay. So it's like an old time, you know, like that's like an old time train thing, junctions, you know? Right, right. Like it, you know, and this train, the, the dinky train, I, which is, I don't know if that's its formal name, but, um, you know, like it only went back and forth between Princeton and Princeton Junction. So Princeton Junction like used to be just sort of this little junction, a train station and a few, like houses it was sort of like a little like island of civilization between two malls you know between like quaker bridge mall and then next mall on the way excuse me on the next mall uh, on the way to uh, was loud. <laughs> <Sorry>. was loud. <laughs> anyway how's he like it out there i think he is going a little crazy just because he's home with like twin girls who are like three years old every day his wife yeah. still works at fuse so she comes in the city so yeah, he's yeah. a little i think he likes it out there but you know i think it's you know I, I, when my daughter was a baby, like, I had her half of the time by myself. Okay. And, like, I mean, I was, like, just dude with a baby, you know? Like, phone in the crook of my shoulder, you know, frying pan in my left hand, you know, baby in my right hand, like, vacuuming with my foot, you right. know? And, like, all my friends were, like baby what you know like they were all just dudes you know and 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 like my parents my mom was living in australia my dad was living in california and i was just like a dude with a baby and and no manual yeah (laughs) totally and no no freaking manual like like and um and it was um it was like do you know the yiddish word nachis no. It's a great, great Yiddish word. I mean, it's like the feeling you get when, like, the grandparents get when they look at their, like, grandchildren's beaming faces on Christmas morning. You know, okay. it's like that, except that Jews don't have Christmas. But, um, like, it was sometimes you just, like, and especially like me, like, I, I'd never had any kind of, like, a, a, th- that kind of, like, experience of, of love before. You know, like, walking in the door and having your kid, like, just, like, fly shrieking into your arms going like daddy daddy you know like no matter what you did like i could give her like a rubber band and she'd be like thank you daddy you know um but and then at the same time it was like brain numbingly boring at times you just right. like you know they want to play barbies and like i don't know how to play barbies <laughs> you know it was just like me and her so it was like okay barbie's going to the moon and there's these aliens on the moon and they're like shooting at her and she's like daddy yeah you're still you know you can still fall back into a 10 year old boy so quickly yeah, in that yeah, scenario yeah. i have a daughter and yeah, like, yeah but i just got i got no 10 year old girl inside of me you know there's no. not there's let alone like a two-year-old girl you know yeah. a three-year-old girl that's wild the bank is empty um Today we're joined by Chris Barron from Spin Doctors. And uh, why did you look at me like inquiringly? <laughs> well, because I actually looked online and it seemed like there was. You, do you have two last names or something? I felt like you were listed as different names, so I just want to make sure I didn't fuck it up. Oh no no no, Chris Barron. I mean my yeah, Chris Barron. I have that's okay. a stage name. Okay, I was a stage name. Um, I don't know if I should say my real name on you don't have to say it but but, yeah it's Chris Gross it's a matter of public record okay um I'm Christopher 
Baron Gross. And Baron's my middle name and my mom's maiden name. Okay. But I mean, first of all, gross. <laughs> you know? Just yeah. that's a one word pitch <clears throat> for changing your name. Probably responsible for you being a successful musician because you probably got teased in grade school, right? Totally. My <laughs> first memory my first memory, um, when I was a little little kid, I lived in Rye, New York. And um my first memory, we lived on a cul-de-sac, and my first memory is the, all the big kids in the neighborhood riding their bicycles around. You know how cul-de-sacs have, like, that circle of bushes at the, you know, in the middle of the, you know, it's like a cul-de-sac, you know, you have the street going down, and then it ends in a circle, and then there's, yeah. like, a circle of bushes. And uh, the big kids were, like, they were riding their bikes around, pushing me into the bushes every time <laughs> I tried to get out, singing, like, Chris is gross. <laughs> That's my first memory. <laughs> Dude, it's totally, it's a boy named Sue. Uh, totally. That song, that's so <laughs> funny you should bring that up because because my dad was really into country music and Johnny Cash, like, I had so many, like, awakenings listening to Johnny Cash's, like, greatest hits. Like, that song, A Boy Named Sue, you know, I guess for your listeners who aren't familiar with the song, it's a song about a boy named Sue and he hunts for his, his dad disappears when he's like, a little kid and just gives him this name Sue and he hunts his dad down to and kill him to kill him for giving him that name and they have this amazing bar fight and I'm, right. in the in the song he's like he's like knock me down I got back up and cut off a piece he cut off a piece ear. of my ear it's like <laughs> it's insane you know it's like it's crazy that's like my favorite Johnny Cash song and in the end of the song the dad's like listen I knew I couldn't be around and and I gave you that name so that you'd learn how to fight and you'd learn how to be tough and um, <laughs> then they hug each other and like drink a beer together yeah. but yeah that's so funny that's really funny that you should mention that because like, like, um, I remember being like seven years old and we, my dad used to listen to that in on cassette in the car all the time. And, um, listening to Folsom prison blues, you know, like there's that one line in there where he's like, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. <clears throat> oh yeah. And, um, and I was like, that line really you know, like bothered me, but in a good way, you know, like couldn't get it out of my head. And I was like, dad, did Johnny Cash kill a man? <laughs> you know, my dad was like, no, you know, he wrote the song. It's a story like that he's making up. It's a character and the character in the song, you know, is this made up character who like killed a guy. And I was like, oh, but why did he shoot him just to watch him die? And my dad goes, because he's a really bad dude. <laughs> and uh, I I was like, like just brain exploded. Like, you know, for me that was like, oh, people write songs and they put crazy shit in yeah. them. Anything they want. Like, maybe I could that do that. That was a turning point. It was a big, yeah, it was a big, like, big realization. I think like, I think, do, do you guys think like, I think when you like, are just sort of bound to to do something in your life like you just stumble across these kinds of insights when you're really early like i was just deeply impressed by songs and songs in particular you know i just remember like from there just just getting i heard i mean years later i heard i heard an like an interview shit with uh, steve winwood and um the it was on um, WPRB in Princeton, which is like the college station, and they were like, 
they had this like fledgling guy interviewing him and um it was when um roll with it was that was that that song it was like yes you know it was that was a great tune and but but it was you know definitely like a kind of a crossover for him and it had like kind of a poppy thing and this you could tell that um this interviewer was like had a chip on his shoulder like he was like a little hipster guy right. had a chip on his shoulder that he wasn't like playing Hammond organ you know on um like a, in in electric ladyland on a Jimi hendrix session <laughs> anymore you know and then he was like doing this like soul thing and um and um he was like what what genre of music do you like and i'll never forget this Winwood was like, I don't go by genre. I go song by song. You know? It's like some guy, some song. I just like songs. That's pretty brilliant. Yeah, you know? It was like, I'm not really interested in genres. And then, so then I started thinking about genres and, and like, you know, what kind of, what bullshit they are in a way. You know, they're really like, because later on doing like interviews and stuff, people would ask me to classify my own music. And I'd be like, I'd be like, you know, I don't, I mean, that's not, that's your job, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know how to c- classify, or no, I, I probably would know how to classify it, like, but I'm not interested in classifying, you know, like, like, um, like, I always f- feel like, from there I sort of realized, like, the genre from a, from like a writer's standpoint is really an afterthought, you know, you, you have an idea for a song, and then you, try to get to the heart of the song as a writer, you know, figure out what that song is really about. And then, then you solve the problems that that proposition brings up, you know, and, um, so that you have like a cohesive song that, 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 you know, you, maybe your idea sort of progresses and and it morphs into something that wasn't exactly the original idea, but in solving those problems, you bring the idea to its logical conclusion and you end up with this cohesive thing at the end. And then you're like, oh, you know, I wrote a reggae song. You know what I mean? Like, the genre is like... It's funny because I used to... I mean, I was in pretty much like a punk rock band. Yeah. uh, I had the country music test when I would write a song is that after I'd had it pretty much laid out in a range is I would pick up an acoustic guitar and try to play it as a country song. Yeah. And if it worked, then I knew that it was a good song. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um, we worked with, um, um, oh shoot, man, I cannot remember anybody's <laughs> fucking name today. Um, it's planetary uh, line. Last name is Wallace. He's a really great producer. Andy Wallace? He did, um, Maroon 5's second record. Um, let's, let's let's look him up on up. the old interweb. But he made us, he made us like, the Spin Doctors did a record with him, and um, um, he'll be in my contacts on my phone. He, um, he Andy Wallace, that's Matt Wallace. Matt Wallace. Matt Wallace. Okay. They're both um, producers, I guess. Yeah, Matt, he's a brilliant, brilliant producer, and he made us, he wouldn't let us, um, he wouldn't let us, we were working in some... The replacements don't tell a soul. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. I thought I recognized. And he did, ah, but you can't have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are yeah, those guys? Faith no more. Faith no more. And you know, he's wow. he's a badass. Yeah, yeah. he's a real badass. That's and sick. he terrific, terrific producer. And and he, 
I learned so much making that record actually from which him. record was that? Um, it's the Spin Doctors record. Nice talking to me. Okay, and um, he did such a great job on it. I was, it's you know, you know, you're working with. I don't know. It's funny because sometimes you know you're working with. Sometimes you work with people and they confuse you, and it's bad. And sometimes right. you work with people and they confuse you, and it's great. You know, and that's like. Matt was like that. Like, Matt, I'd be doing backing vocals. And he kept telling me, like, okay, sing this like, 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 um, you know, like you're a black guy, like on the corner, like singing in the street. And I'd be like, but that doesn't match the, the like, tone. It just, and he was like, just, just do me a favor. Just do me a favor. <laughs> and, like, do it. and he, and he would like direct me and direct me and direct me until I was like a caricature. You know, like, until it wasn't just, like, singing it like some... He would do it until it was, like, just this crazy, you know, re- I'd be singing like this and just doing some crazy, crazy-ass thing. And, and and like, I finally was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, what, are you, <laughs> what are you doing? Because then he'd be like, okay, sing it like falsetto. I'd be like, okay, and then... And I had to stop him. Like, I couldn't get through the process, like, because it was just too weird and too confusing. And I was like, you know, I'm thinking, like, we're just spending time and I got to fly home in 10 days and, you know, right. I'm in L.A. And, like, what the hell is going on here? And he was like, he was like, um, what I'm trying to do is, like, if I, if I get all these different characters in there, I feel like subconsciously the listener is going to, they're going to hear, like, all these different tones. So if there's an angry guy in there and, like a happy guy and like a falsetto angelic guy in there. And then like a you know, nasty low down dude in there, you know, like people are going, if I tuck them all in together in just the right way, people in like a bad mood will pick up on it. People in a good mood will pick up on it. And, and like, when I listened back to when it, then I was like, Oh, cool. You know, right. let's do this. And then we just started like devising all these fucked up, you know, crazy, like, dudes you know to be singing in the backing vocals and when he when he got a, like a really cool mix of it it sounded fucking amazing you know and i'd never to me you know to me like i came in there being like you know this is 12 years ago or something like that so i mean you know to me singing backing vocals was all about tightness just going in there right. and like and i was proud of my ability to like um you know whether it's me you know, doing a backing vocal on my own stuff or like coming in and doing a backing vocal on somebody else. I was like proud of my ability to come in and just like, I could just do that. I'd get my ear around like a backing, uh, around a lead vocal and I could just cover it like a cheap shoot. Right. You know what I mean? Like just lacquer it. So it just didn't sound like anything was happening except another note like was magically in there, right. you know? And, um, Wow, that sounded really egomaniacal. But you know what I mean? That's, that's like a job, skill. Man. Yeah, it's my job. <clears throat> you know, right? like yeah, exactly. Just wanted to <laughs> that to me was it was all about just being super duper, you know, tight. And right. and then when you know, you come across somebody else who's just like, Well, what if it's not tight? What if it's weird? Right. In my like and and it's weird for this reason, you know. Um It's interesting because one of the biggest I mean, it's funny the way he described the reason for you to do that which is cool. I think also from like a more technical point of view, one of the things that I've found is when you've got, especially if you have bands where you don't have a lot of people that sing, maybe one or two. Yeah. When you do background vocals, layering the same vocal over and over again, you get into really, no matter how good it is, you get into these problems where there's just not 
enough like richness to it. There's not enough thickness, and e- and even to the point where certain frequencies just really get like yeah. one of the tricks that you'll see engineers do. I'm sure you've seen is they'll swap out the mics every time you do another take. Yeah, and like the idea is just to try to make it sound a little different. See, that's funny because I do. I was naturally doing, um, um, this thing that um, uh man, the. The Fowler brothers, Bernard Fowler, who sings backing vocals for um, the Rolling Stones. Right. We had them come in and do backing vocals. And when they would layer their vocals, they would like um, triple and quadruple them. And and so what they would do is they would do one that was like straight up the middle. Then they'd do like a slightly breathy one. And they'd do like a super breathy one. So when I like, you know, when I'm doing, I always like, you. that's the thing is there's definitely like, there's an art to it. And yeah. you got to like, you have to, um, you know, I was already kind of doing what Matt was saying, but he was taking it because I was doing it like with the tone. Right. You know what I mean? Because yeah, you, you understood you're right. the concept that you didn't. It's got to, it's got to be. He gave you some technique. Yeah. You do, you do one that's like, like a veneer, you know, that's like super duper tight, super duper on it. They're all super duper tight and super duper on it. But like you do, you know, you do some, a breathy one, a slightly breathy one and, you know, you have to switch up the tone depending on the recording. Right. You know what I mean? But he was like, he wanted me to be different people. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? I, it's awesome. I mean, it's a great idea. Like, yeah. It makes and he, perfect sense because, I mean, also because the first thing you've got to do as a producer is get get what you want out of the artist, no matter how. Like, yeah. He, that might not even have been his intention. He may not even, he, he, he may have been totally bullshitting you. Like, I don't care. I don't want people to hear all these different emotions. I wanted to hear one emotion, but I wanted to have this thick layer of, like, yeah, yeah. dude singing yeah, 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 You know yeah. what I mean? But that's the best way for him to get it out of you was to, like, I mean, or maybe he really did. Maybe he was being straight up. But I think it's yeah. just, like, the fact that he knew how to, th- yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a sign of a great producer. Yeah, it is, it is a sign of a great producer. He knew the best way to get the performance that he wanted from you was to explain this to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, like, you know, the the I think that was straight up like his thing because he wasn't he wasn't explaining it to me at all and I'm the kind of guy where like if I if I know what the concept is and I like it I'll jump out the right. window for you you know what I mean yeah yeah and, and so after that once I realized oh this guy's there's a method to this guy's madness then I would just do anything he asked me to because right. I was like this comes out really cool when yeah. he just when I just do his weird shit you know dude that's a great I mean that's a really good technique though I wish. <clears throat> Yeah, you should try it. It's really, it's really, <laughs> it's really funny. It comes out really cool. Yeah, it comes out really cool. Um, but actually, I brought up Matt because of your country, your country, uh-huh. punk rock country test, and um, and he wouldn't let us. He wouldn't let us. Um, like we were, we were rehearsing in, you know, this nice rehearsal studio in L.A. So, and these, you know, if your listeners have never been to a nice rehearsing studio, rehearsal studio in L.A., like these, you got this big room with like these nice amplifiers and like, and actually like a PA, like a public address system like yeah. you'd have at a, at a show pointing back at the yeah. band. So, you know, the singer's got a mic, drummer's got a yeah, drum like set, SIR everybody's got, yeah, like right? SIR, you know, everybody's got like, you know, it's the same kind of rig that you would have pretty much on stage, but you're just in this room playing together, and then usually, like, there's like a couch and some chairs and stuff like that, <laughs> like a setup, you know, over on the side of the room, and he made us, like, sit on the couch and the chairs, and made a drummer, like, just pat his knees, 
like playing no drum set and made the bass player the bass player had like another little tiny amp and he made our guitar player just play acoustic you know and i just sang with no microphone and he wouldn't let us get onto the rigs onto the amplifiers until like we could just play till we had it like till it the arrangement sounded good just on acoustic which i immediately was like this is this is you know this is the shit like duh this is great but it drove our guitar player crazy you know um well, and something's it, going to though yeah well every, you know that's guitar players you know you know what you throw a drowning guitar player what? his amplifier <laughs> <laughs> um you're you've got two guitar players looking at you I'm a guitar player too. <laughs> really, and I'm a lead singer. Yeah, I'm the oh, worst yeah. of both worlds. Yeah, you know how yeah, many dude. lead singers? You know how many lead singers it takes to screw in a light bulb? No, one as long as the world continues to revolve around it. <laughs> how do you? Amazing. How do you know? I must have known that. One. How do you know a lead singer is at your door? How he knocks out of time. <laughs> he doesn't have the key, and he doesn't know when to come in. <laughs> How many producers does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. I, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more guitar player joke. This guitar player goes to hell, right? And uh, and it's it's like this awesome club, you know. But it's it's kind of a shithole. But it's funky and it's cool. It's, it sounds really good in there, and it's full of people who are like rocking out. It's band on stage, and they're fucking killing it, right? This demon comes out of the shadows with a 59, a Les Paul 59, like, flame top. Right. Guitar, hands it to the guitar player. The guitar player is, like, astonished. You know, $50,000 guitar. Like, takes it, puts it on, his, puts it on, you know. The demon, like, gestures to the stage, you know. And the, the guy, the guitar player gets on stage, plugs into this, like, beautiful 70s Marshall rig, turns it on. It's like, it sounds unbelievable. Leans over into the eaves of the stage you know to the demon who's like still standing there with his arms folded he says um are you sure this is hell i mean you know this amazing guitar great crowd great club great band you know the demon kind of shrugs you know this non-committal gesture and uh the guitar player goes when do i get a solo and the demon goes never <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what was sort of the process for like the earlier stuff, like Pocket Full of Kryptonite and that stuff? Did you have a lot of direction from the outside or was that kind of more just you guys? That was very much us. You know, we, I mean, when we started this band out, I was like a, you know, a 19 year old kid with a bunch of tunes in a, in a, one of those black and white composition notebooks, like writing in fucking fountain pen, you know, and super analog because digital didn't exist yet. And, um, you know, I met the guys, I was playing like solo acoustic between the sets of the blues traveler. I went to high school with the, with the blues traveler. So they moved to New York city a year before I did. And I, I followed them a year later and moved in with those guys. And they were like, you're not in the band, but you can play in between our sets. We were playing this place called the Nightingale bar. And so I met Eric Shankman, the guitar player, and he and I, he had a gig um, up at Columbia, a frat party. So we kind of put a band together. We got, we got Aaron Comas, we had a different bass player to begin with, and he and I just started kind of working together. And um, we were this kind of, you know, like part of this kind of, uh, you know, it's funny because, you know, I don't think people think of us this way because we 
achieved like you know this like kind of pop um status you know um but we were this underground like new york city improvisation you know jamming kind of band um coming along with the blues traveler and we you know we were kind of pals with like fish and you know we 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 hit the road after the band had been together for six months or a year and we just toured our freaking brains out and got signed so by the time we went into um into the studio these songs you know little miss can't be wrong two princes 40 or 50 refrigerator car all that pocket full of kryptonite stuff it was pretty polished because we'd been playing it live for a year or two so we had um we had we we had um a guy named frank aversa started out um producing produced kind of the first half of the record and um peter denenberg produced the second half kind of took over at one point and and finished out the record and um you know they were kind of gently guiding us but they were smart enough to kind of like let us you know, tighten things up when they when when they needed to, but kind of let us go because we all um, really, I think, had a had like um, an instinct, you know. And so, meanwhile, um, you know, Frankie Laraca, who passed away um, several years ago, was our A and R guy. And a, for your listeners who don't know what an A and R guy is, it's, just, it does, it's like an extinct form of record executive. Um, it used to mean artists and repertoire, so it was the liaison between the the um, label and the band. And so he worked at the label, but his job was to to help us to make the best record that we could, and to make sure that the you know the label was getting their money's worth, and that we weren't just in the studio you know, snorting cocaine or some stupid crazy crap like that. So, um, which we weren't. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, they kind of, they kind of, you know, we were, we were like almost as much a gang as we were a band. Like the president of the record label would walk in and be like, Oh, gentlemen, he was English. Oh, don't you think that you should maybe, uh, pick up the tempo a little bit we would laugh him out of the studio and i look back now and i was like man we had balls you know like we were just we didn't give a shit what anybody thought and we we saw ourselves as the as the sole arbiters of what was going down in that studio note by note and and i think that i think that um all of the best projects i've ever been a part of it was very clear who had a say creatively and who did not you know the best records i've ever made it was like okay you know um the band and this guy the producer the band and this guy and this guy you know and and anybody else like you'd listen to people's input but like you kind of look around at each other and be like no they don't know what the fuck we're doing here and if they came in and gave some kind of input you'd be like you know, you didn't have to laugh them out of the room or be rude the way we were when we were like twenty. You know, right? Um, but, but you know, there'd be this like look that would go around the room and just be like, "That dude's out." You know, <laughs> like, whatever. That's 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 bullshit. Because you know, I mean, um, the more people you, it's funny because there's input and there's input. You know, and um, like um. When when um, I did a short stint at at um, 
SUNY purchase, I was, you know, just decided it was time to like give back a little bit. So I was teaching some songwriting there. I just did it for a year or two and it was really interesting and informative. And, and I just didn't have the time to like give it, you know, the, I kept being like, Oh, I'm going on tour. Or I'll make up all these classes later. And then being like, Oh crap, <laughs> what am I going to make these classes up? And I was kind of screwing the students a little bit, you know, just by <clears throat> not having enough time. But like, they were all like, they were all kind of really hungry for critiques because that's the way they were being taught was, was, you know, like bringing songs in and having them critiqued. And I was like, nobody ever critiqued my shit. I never wanted anybody to critique my shit. You know, what I always did was like, I still do this. It was like, I'd write a tune and all my buddies were like songwriters too growing up. You know, all my best friends were writing songs. So we would just, we would write songs you know, you write a song and you'd be like, hey, I wrote a song, you want to hear it? And we'd be like, yeah, because that was what we were all about, you know? And you'd play the song and you'd be playing the tune and you'd just be feeling the vibe in the room, you know what I mean? Right. Just, you'd be watching them. I'd be critiquing their reaction, reaction yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and you could just, you could just tell, you know, you could tell, you play the song and you're like, nobody says anything. You don't even have to look at anybody, you know what I mean? But like, you can feel like a... A line goes over really well. I, I'll never forget this. Like, you know, I wrote this tune. I never put it out. Um, but it's uh, it's called uh, When You're Done. It's a song about a guy who's, like, talking to, to um, you know, a girl that, that he loves. And he's like, yeah, when you're done, like, with that other guy, remember I am the one. When you're done, remember I am the one. And and so the last, um, the last verse in writing it, and I came up with this really clunky ass line. It's like the first, the last verse starts out like, when you're done fooling around with that mook, come see about your incorrigible kook. <laughs> and it like, it didn't, it was so wonky. It didn't even fit in. So right. I had to, after I go incorrigible kook, I just had to play like a bar of like, of, of G, you know, like I was ring gang 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 remember december is cold and i'm as warm as the sun when you're done remember i am the one and like i was like oh that's stupid but i'll just fix it later you know right. so the next day like you know a couple of my buddies come over um you know billy and ben come over and we're having a cup of coffee i'm like looking at my table uh coffee table and, and there's like that song sitting on the uh, on the coffee table in a notebook and i go oh hey you guys want to hear this song look like, yeah sure man so i play it for him and i get to that line and i'm like starting the third verse and i think to myself oh shit i never rewrote this line well, uh, whatever you know i'll just i'll just play it so i sing the incorrigible kook line and the two of them start laughing their asses off you know what i mean yeah. and um and like and then, like, the fact that it was all wonky and weird, and I had to play that, like, right. that bar of G, you know, like, for nothing. The extra bar. The extra bar. It left room for the laughter, you know? <laughs> and I was playing I was playing that tune around, like, for a little while, and, like, that was the best line in the tune. That, like, made the tune, you know? But if I had, if I had asked somebody to critique that song, you know what I mean? Yeah. Even in my own, like, mental critique as I was writing it, that would have been the first line people would have gone to. They'd have been like, ah, incorrigible kook. I mean, what are you doing there? I think you should rewrite that line. If I'd had somebody critique it, they would have taken that line out. But the thing is that when people critique your stuff, usually they go right to the coolest fucking thing 
the little weird flaw right. in the diamond that makes the surprising colors pop out. And that's the first thing they want to chop out of it because the first time you hear it through, you know, you, you, that's the thing that kind of, that's the bump. Right. You know what I mean? Well, if you hadn't put that extra bar in, it probably would have just been clunk, but you made it clunkety clunk. You know yeah. What I mean? Like yeah. you exaggerated the clunkiness. So then it became, it became a hook or whatever. But that's what I was talking know? about before, you know, is like, is like you, you know, a song, you have an idea for a song, you have this proposition, you know? Um, and then the next thing you have to do is, is like, is, is bring that, bring that proposition to some kind of a conclusion. You have to find out, like, what is this proposition about? What am I really, like, what is the question behind my question? And then, and then usually what that turns out to be is like a bunch of smaller questions, and you have to answer all those questions as you're going along. So, you know, like, there I am, like, answering all these questions, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, how am I going to bring this idea home? You know, when you're done fooling around with that mook, you know, like, come see about your incorrigible kook, and it doesn't fit in. So part of that answer is, like, I got to leave, like, four bars for nothing right. just to, like, fit that weird line in. And, you know, and then you just let it sit. And, um... And, you know, once, once that all like simmered for a while, that was the, you know, like raw garlic is going to blow your face off. You know what I mean? (laughs) But if you just kind of turn the heat down low and you just let it sit in the pan for a while, that's the flavor behind the flavor that makes everything taste so good. You know what I mean? So it takes a long time to learn all this stuff. It's, it's, you're learning how to make mistakes. You know, it's like... you probably, when you were 20, you know, you would be horrified by, by like thinking that you had something technically flawed. So that's why you have the gang mentality that you're talking about, because that's how you, that's, that is what you use in place of, um, of confidence, which, you know, you later grow confidence, you know, and, and like, see, but you're a guitar player. <laughs> I'm a lead singer. So I was like, you know, when I was, uh, when I was, um, like seven, my, my like catch line as a little seven year old was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like say something funny and make all the grown ups laugh or cute or something like that, right. make all the grown ups laugh. And I would hold my hands up in like this, you know, didn't, you know, gesture of self deprecation to go, no applause, please. <laughs> Just throw money. <laughs> seven years old, like, you know, lead singers, they ought to put us all in like, in a van and just close the garage door, turn it on and just, Oh, that would be rough. Oh, rock and roll would be, <laughs> rock and roll would be so much better without lead singers. I mean, what was it sort of like during, cause it's like during this sort of maybe like the nineties, that era when like you guys were selling so many millions of records and you were sort of a lead singer. I mean, were you just like on private jets all the time? Cause that's such like kind of like a mythical thing now. Like I feel that kind of yeah. stuff doesn't exist we were anymore. So, we were so lucky to live through that like fat, time you know um yeah i mean it was like just sushi every day in the studio and like um yeah label were you signed to we were on epic which is which was the when we signed it was cbs but then a month later it became sony so yeah we were on we were on epic and um you know um let me think of some like really decadent stuff we went to gotham one night with um the pre- the the label president um this guy richard griffiths lovely lovely dude um 
And um, we had this just unbelievable dinner. And then um, we ordered for dessert. I ordered um, um, a, a bottle of Chateau de Chem, which is like this dessert wine. And it was like, you know, $250 or something like that. And, and um, I was like, oh, let's get, let's get this. Look, they have a Dechem, you know, and um, and Richard was like, "Oh, two hundred and fifty dollars. That's that's quite that's quite cheap for that. Let's, let's get a bottle." They bring it out, and it's a half bottle. It's like a demi. It's a little demi bottle, and um, and so so we all have like a little taste of it, and it's like, you know, it's so delicious, and um, I mean, it's like fucking fairies dancing on your tongue you know and um it was so good and i was like let's get another one and we just got another one you know it was like just just crazy crazy yeah, I don't stuff think labels like that. have that budget anymore. no man it's no. a different world now yeah it's just straight up you know crazy expense account kind of stuff um but i you know i have to be i have to be i mean it was so much fun and at the same time it's ironic because like as a band, we just were not getting along very well. Um, Even in the beginning? No, in the beginning, like the first year or two, we got along great. But we were just on the road nonstop, right. um, super burnt out. Uh, I mean, I look back now and I realize we all, you know, really care about each other, but we just didn't have like the emotional tools to to communicate properly, you know? Um so I wish, I wish like, you know, I wish that we had been able to kind of, uh, communicate a little better and, um, um, and like there were moments that I think we could have enjoyed a lot more. Um, like, you know, we, we sold out this huge shed in Milwaukee. It was like 44,000 people. And um, we go backstage afterwards and it should have been like, I mean, it should have been just this huge milestone. My yeah. memory is like being backstage, like, you know, yelling at each other and our guitar player, yeah. like our guitar player, like throwing a chair and like, you know, it was just like this crazy, you know, crazy stuff. And, you know, it just should have been, it should have been more fun. Um, But, you know, that's like, that's the thing about being inexperienced you know is that is that you have this propensity to like squander the greatest moments of your life you well, know you get you know you focus on on immediate things too much you know yeah. like i mean that's i mean when similar story i remember i remember when we got signed to warner brothers my band my little yeah. band that had been fighting to you know like Get, fighting the world for so long, you know, to like get to that magical place where you get a record deal, and we got this great record deal. And like, I remember the lead singer literally like said, "You know, guys, we need to after rehearsal today, we got to go out and and like get a nice dinner and like celebrate. We just got signed. Like, we were literally so focused on the next steps. Okay, now we have to pick a producer. What are we mm-hmm. going to do for the re-? like? We were so caught up in the yeah, details yeah. that we didn't realize that we had just passed." what we'd all been working for since we were 12 years old yeah, and we were about to just let it blow by yeah, without yeah. even acknowledging it. Yeah. Yeah. And our, like, that's exactly what you're talking about. Our you're guitar like, player, when we were playing, um, we're playing on Bleecker street at this club called the Mondo Perso. And it was, 
you know, we were the like the shit hot club band in New York, you know, yeah. we're packing the snot out of places every single night because back then, like, the, you know, there wasn't like any Internet, like people like left their houses and hung out together in bars, right. seeing bands yeah. every night, you know, and we were playing we were playing every night. We called it the Manhattan Tour. We were playing, you know. Where you playing? I mean, you played Wetlands like once a week, right? Yeah, we played Wetlands. We played Wetlands. We played the Mondo Cani, the Mondo Perso. Those both of those clubs were owned by um, the same, um, the same owner. Um, we played um, Continental Divide, which is now the Continental, or maybe it's Coney Island something. I don't no, know. It's, um, it's Continental. They it's don't still have bands anymore. They don't have bands anymore. We used to play. We had a. We played there every Saturday night. That was our first, like, kind of, um, that was the first club that was like, yeah, you're our Saturday night band. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Trigger. And, pardon me? Trigger, the owner. Remember him? The guy who always Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> um, the, who used to book it, though? We used to, we used to deal, I do remember Trigger. Man, I haven't thought about him in a long yeah, time. who was the guy that booked it? Was that old dude with glasses? Oh, you no, know, he was, uh, the guy that we worked with was um, an Australian guy. Oh. Man, he'd be so pissed off if he knew I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> That's too many bong hits back in the hippie days. Um, but like, I mean, here's 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 a here's a uh, a great you know story about what we're talking about. I mean, we in New York back then, the clubs that really treated you fairly and paid the bands well were the Mondo Connie and the Mondo Perso. And they were booked by this guy whose name, believe it or not, was Adolf. And um, um, this sweet, lovely, um, like, South African guy who was gayer than confetti back then, which, you know, wasn't like... That wasn't like dudes being, like, openly flamboyantly gay was right. like... You know, he was a brave dude. And he used to wear, like, lederhosen and combat boots and just, like, <laughs> frolic. You know, the cat was frolicking. And... um and he, you know, really, like, he went out on a limb for us and the Blues Traveler, like, these bands, like, we were not, those were blues bars, and we were not really, like, dyed-in-the-wool blues right. bands, but we played the blues all night. Right. Um, but, like, you know, he had to fight for us with the with the owners of the bar, and and um, and then we sold a lot of alcohol, so then they were, didn't care. You know, we yeah. made we made the bar money, so that. that but he had to fight to get us in there. And if you were short on the phone bill, you know, he would like pay our phone bill. He paid our phone bills. He like paid our you know rent like on numerous occasions. Whoa. Like got us like past the first of the month ticket out of our pay. But the thing was, you know, they paid two hundred and fifty bucks on a weeknight and five hundred bucks on a weekend. So if you could break into the weekends there, you were like, you know you were doing really well. You could make a living in the city right. if you broke in, if you became one of the Mondo bands. So we played our first Friday night at Mondo Cane. We get paid um, 500 bucks. It's 100 bucks a guy. We give 100 bucks to Jason Richardson, our, our like, you know, manager. And um, I walk out of this bar. I got 100 bucks in my pocket. I walk down to uh, Bleecker Street to the Triumph Diner. It's a freaking subway now, you know? Not a subway stop, like a subway sandwich, right, right, right. you know. And um, it was this great, you know, old time, you know, Greek style diner. And I walk in there and I look at the menu and I'm so used to ordering like a, you know, an egg sandwich or like the cheapest thing right. on the menu, you know. And I suddenly realized I got a hundred bucks in my pocket and I ordered a T-bone steak <laughs> and a double thick milkshake and, um, you know, all these sides. And then, and like I ordered, I, I'll never forget this, I ordered like, I got a side of coleslaw. 
just because I could afford it. You know what I mean? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like, even eat it. I man. didn't even eat a bite of it, man. I just threw it on the ground. And um and like um you know, later on, later on, like we um I'm not like a rich dude now, you know what I mean? I I get some nice checks from BMI and everything like right. that. But you'd be surprised at, you know, like t- two two dot com crashes and you right. know a bit of you know custody battle and a sure. bit of like life going by and you know but i'm 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 comfortable you know i'm not like but i'm not like you know riding around in yachts and right. taking private planes everywhere and stuff like that um but like you know a lot of you know we we um refinanced we re uh, renegotiated our contract with Sony later on and got a million dollar advance, which you'd be surprised at how much like the lawyers and the managers and everybody it's like oh, after yeah. a million bucks. <laughs> it was amazing. And then you split it four ways. It was amazing how little was left. Um but I mean, you know, like I mean I I saw a million dollar check right. that came into like my band, you know. Yeah. And um but I never I never have never ever again felt as rich as I felt Right. Like cutting into that T-bone steak that Because, yeah, once you... It's those early days, man. And and you can celebrate these tiny little moments. Like, yeah, just even your first... Not even getting paid, but the first Friday night you get to play in fucking New York. It's, like, so immense. Mm -hmm. And you'll remember that. And then, yeah. And as as it gets serious and it becomes... I think it's when it becomes... I always felt like it was like it was this battle that you we were fighting together, you know, as a, as a band. We were like us against the world. We got to prove ourselves, and then you prove yourself, and you get there, and suddenly it's like a job, and then and all these amazing moments that you look forward to before you do, they go right they can go right by. Yeah, that I million think, dollar check, like yeah, you probably man. were like stressing out over it. No, you have to like <laughs> you have to um, you gotta like. Because what happens is, it's like you're on this merry-go-round, you know? And deep inside, we're all like, deep inside, we're all children. And we're helpless children, you know? And we're sitting on that, like, crazily painted horse that we're a little frightened of. And, like, there's your mom and dad, you know? And, like, the, and, and the, the, the gate that you walked in and the familiar faces of the people... You know, and then that crazily painted horse like carries you around to the other side where you can't see any of that anymore. And there's the brass ring, you know, <laughs> and and you're just reaching for it. And you, you maybe you fall off the horse. Maybe you get it, you know, but that brass ring then is on your finger and it's all you can see for a while. Right. You know, but but the trick is is to get. To take the merry-go-round all the way back around right. until you can see like mom and dad's face again, until you can see Show the, the place ring. you walked in. <laughs> yeah, and but like you know the brass ring, you, and then you forget about the brass ring. You know what I mean? Right, right. And you're back to where you were like a child again, back to where you're like, you know, a little frightened, but it's fun. And and you know that's like to me, I think I think the greatest achievement of like this portion of my life is that. I'm finger painting again, you know, like I'm, I write a song and I don't care who's going to hear it. I don't, I, I don't care. Like, you know, I just like, I want to like it. I want to like, I write the way I wrote when I was a kid. You know, I sat down to write two princes. I was 19 years old sitting on the edge of my bed. You know, I didn't know anything about like what I, 
I knew some stuff about writing songs, but I didn't know what it took to write like a hit song. I didn't know. I had no plan for that song. All I wanted to do was write a tune that like would make girls like me. You yeah, know what I mean? Of course. And I wrote <laughs> I wrote the first two lines of that song. Um, it's, you know, one, two, princes kneel before you, princes, princes who adore you. And it's just like that other tune I was telling you about before. I I took I I wrote those two down and looked at the top of the page. I had two lines on the paper. And I was like, that's stupid. That's dumb. Where the hell is that going? And then, you know, one thing I learned to do really early on is, um, is you know, when you're writing, you got a creative voice and you have an editing voice. And you have to find the volume knob on those voices. And when in the initial phases of, of like, making something, you got to turn the editor voice knob all the way down and you got to turn the creative voice all the way up. So... You know, I just was like, you know, I was like, shut up, editor voice. You know, I'm turning you off. And was just like, turn back to the little yellow legal pad. And I was like, let's just see where this is going. Half an hour later, I had like the tune that is the reason why you guys like give a shit about talking to me right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 um, you know, that's the... That's been like the, whether, you know, and I like that song. You know, people kind of like... People who like I somebody somebody put something on like um an Instagram photo that I posted, like, you know, uh or somebody somebody posted a photo of me at a gig and I'm I'm wearing a tie, a spin doctor's gig, and I leaned I'm leaning like way out over the edge of the stage and they must have been like in the front row and they held up their thing and they got a pic- close up picture of me and like some guy's like, you know, I guess he's not a bike messenger anymore. The blah blah sell out, you know. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you know, like wow, you know. I mean, I, I, I just, I think it's really <laughs> funny because, because, you know, almost everybody would sell out if they could. I don't know how to sell out. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't like, you know. And and when that, like, when that song, that song, like, um. You know, we were on the road for two years behind that album before anything happened. <laughs> you I can't was, sell out if you're nowhere at all and you and you have a hit. Yeah, it's you like know, you can sell out if you already are kind of there in the business and you decide to like no bring on some professional. No, Sony, stop promoting my band. <laughs> I don't want it to be successful. I don't want to make a living playing music i mean it's 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 really really funny and i mean you know if you listen to the rest of that record you know that's a weird record there's some like you know there's some weird songs on that record 40 or 50 refrigerator car there's some dark ass shit it's you know people people um you know you know for people who are just like tuning in i'm my name is chris barron i'm 47 <laughs> years old i'm the lead singer of this band spin doctors we're the guys who had that song um, two princes. It's like it's the one that's got the bitty bitty crap in it. You know, it was really big in the nineties. It was the most played song in the world on the radio in nineteen ninety four. You know, and it's wow. the thing that I'm known. It's the thing that I'm known for now. And um, but you know, if you think that I'm like, if you think that I'm like some goofball muppet in a goofy Guatemalan hat, one, you're right. But two, <laughs> you know, I challenge you to to let go and check out the rest of that record because, like, I think you'll find like that there's some really weird, you know, dark shit on there. And it was just I always found it really funny because, you know, we came up at the same time as like Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and and I really I love Nirvana. I love Soundgarden. Um, I think those, they're really great bands. 
And, and at the same time, you know, I, I think there was a lot of bands out there that had a really nihilistic outlook. And I, I always felt um, that, you know, the purpose of, the purpose of like, you know, a creative endeavor is to like put these ideas out there. And I believe that if your ideas don't offer, um, if your philosophy, any philosophy, if a philosophy, whether it's your philosophy or some other philosophy that doesn't offer you some kind of solace in this world, then it's a pretty fucking useless philosophy. You know, like it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the world is completely fucked and that, that it's driven by greed and that we're, you know, we're all subject to forces outside of our control and that, um, you know, tragedy strikes good people. And, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot to figure out that, that the world is deeply, profoundly and, and, and tragically unfair. Okay, you figured that out? Okay, you're some kind of fucking genius. What's hard is like figuring out like why to go on? Why to like why to live another day in this in this horrendous world where all these terrible things are happening? That's what's hard is is reconciling it. So, you know, um I always said like, you know, we were like the alternative to alternative, you know? Because um I mean, I and I'm not trying to put those other bands down and I'm not trying to like find fault you know with their philosophy or anything like that i'm just saying that for me i always i always felt like you know it was important to um you know face certain but if you if you even even like our tunes like two princes if you look at two princes like that's happy music with sad lyrics right you know you put that song in a minor key would be kind of like wow okay this guy is like there's another dude that's got this that's gonna get this girl that this dude is in love with you know um but you could dance to it. But you could dance That's to it, man. That's the key. I you remember when you guys it. were like, when yeah, when all three of those bands you mentioned were really happening, and you guys got the girls because yeah, girls liked our band. You could dance to it. They still man. do. But I think there's Smart. also like a misconception that like you you have to be this sort of tortured artist, and like that makes your art maybe more legitimate or something like that. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Uh, and he and was tortured is by his last name. I'm trying to try to oh, explain yeah. that at the top of this podcast. But, but the <laughs> thing I think is the thing is like we're all sort of tortured, you know? Like who's not tortured? I mean, I right. think I think that there's like you can be tortured without being tortured sort of. You know what I mean? There's a lot of there's plenty of pain in this world to um to draw from. Um I think the I think the myth is I think the myth is is that you need to be tortured and subsequently crippled you know what i mean um because because i think you do need to like tap into you need to tap into these negative emotions that's a great that's the great um thing that we have as artists you know our great the great like um consolation of any creative person is that you take you know, all the shit of your life and it's, you know, it becomes like the, the, um, you know, that shit becomes like the fertilizer for your creations, you know? And, um, you know, every, I got all these great tunes from all of my like breakups, all the times I broke, my heart got broken in this life. I came out of it with a song, which is more than, you know, a lot of people can say for the heartbreaks that they suffer in this life. And um, I feel bad for people who don't have something to like, 
you know, something to sublimate all the heartbreak of this life into, you know? Um, yeah, to be able to, to actually get something out of that heartbreak, that's what you, you know, as an artist, you yeah. can do. And yeah, you, it's the greatest. It, other, it goes to waste if you're not an artist, I guess. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what people do. But then there's also, I think what, you know, Jonah was kind of alluding to is like, what happens when you're happy? Can you still make good yeah. art? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the so. age old question. I think so. I think like, I think, um, you know, there's, there's, because, because there's not just like sadness to write about. There's irony, you know, and there's satire and there's, um, um, you know, observations about other people. And, you know, I don't, I don't think you, I don't think, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think I get some of the best stuff out of times when I'm like really angry and really sad and not, I don't always write an angry or sad song, you know, but a lot of times that brings up stuff that, um, you know, that, uh, that comes out to be like really good songs. But I, I, you know, like I, I'm, I'm working on, um, a record right now. And, um, you know, like, 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 you know, something that I really admire is, um, is Tom Waits, you know, who I don't, I, I mean, I think, I don't think he's like, you know, in that CD, you know, monkey, jacked up, topsy turvy, cracked, ramshackle world that he's like writing from. He doesn't, it's like, it's like it sort of, you know, the mud gets on his coat, but it doesn't get on his skin. You know what I mean? It's like he's, you know, he's. If I think, <clears throat> yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's you know, most of I think most people get their success because they're driven by something. You know, like you're saying, you just wanted to get laid when you're 19. You know? Yeah, like, and that's almost 90 percent of the bands in the world. That's that was the most. I was. Force. I wasn't even like that far. I just wanted girls to like even like me. Yeah, you just want to <laughs> fucking. I would have been. I would have settled for being considered <laughs> as a human being. Yeah, and then and then you know the the, the successful artists that have long they figure out how to keep something driving them. You know, I mean, and you talked about Kurt Cobain in his case. There was something driving him that was dark. Obviously, mm. you know. Hopefully. You know, you can find something to drive you that's not necessarily dark. I think Tom Waits is like, he's like a journalist. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think he loves these characters that he writes about, but they're not him. Yeah. You know, like he pretends maybe that they are, but I think that's why he can continue to like literally have a constant sort of quality to his yeah. work because he's like, he never was that person in his song, I don't think. I think he's just like, he's a great observer and an amazing journalist. Yeah. Um, I totally he's agree. He's a lucky motherfucker for that reason. Like, well, he's a poet. You <laughs> yeah, know, he's, a, he's poet. a poet. He's a poet. And like, not all poetry, you know, like, just, um, you know, when I'm writing a song, like, I, I'm going after these little, like, small objectives, you know, going line by line, looking for, like, you know, a double entendre or, um, 
you know, to to I have all these little devices, you know, right. like like um one of the things I really like to do, I call it the primrose path, you know, when you the the expression to lead someone down the primrose path means to like to like sort of you know, make them think that you're leading them towards something good, but then you're going to rip them off, you know, and I, um, or the outcome is not what they expected. And I love to like, you know, language is full of these built in expectations. You know, if I say a stitch in time, you know, what's coming next, you know, I'm going to say like saves nine, you know, but leading people down these linguistic paths and then turning it around at the end, um, is 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 one of the, so I'm just looking for like beautiful combinations of words, you know, and surprising combinations of words, and trying to sort of like crack this language apart and look at the the pieces shining in in the the light of the window, you know, that I'm standing next to, and you don't have to be tortured to do that, you know, you can just be like a kook, you know. Um, I always wondered why. People, when I was young, you know, before I knew as much as I do now, um, I used to wonder why anybody would paint like a still life, you know? Why would somebody paint like a bowl of fruit, you know? And um, when um, when I started working with Eric Shankman from The Spin Doctors, he had a great big, huge, like, you know, seven by seven foot poster of this Cezanne painting of a it's a still life it's like a bowl of oranges right and um and i was used to look at it and be like why did he paint a bowl of oranges you know how boring and one day i was just sitting there and 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 i realized like because it was a beautiful painting Mm -hmm. and and it it hit me that that all around us all the time There's this moment that we're either like aware of or not, you know, but, but right now there are waves crashing against a beautiful cliff in Ireland. And if you were standing there with the wind in your face, you know, squinting against like, a like the, the spray of the, of the sea, you'd be mind blown, right. you know, and, and the sun is rising on double suns are rising on the moons of other planets right now right. you know and um and someone is enthralled listening to like a piece of music they've never heard before right now right in this moment right now you know somewhere somebody is like stroking their cat in the in the papery beam of sunlight that's coming through their gigantic window pane on a wood floor or the persian carpet you know right now in this moment and somewhere there's a a bowl of fruit sitting on a table you know that someone is realizing is in another one of those kinds of of fragile beautiful moments and it's it's always happening right now and that's the thing that's the thing it's easy to like it's easy to find that immediacy in a violent moment it's easy to find that immediacy when when like evil Knievel is like riding a motorcycle up a ramp about to like you know cross three london bus buses you know it's easy to jump out of a plane and feel that you know but to be able to like to be able to kind of sit in a room and forget that you know you have to go to the dentist next thursday and forget that like you know 
or remember that, but still realize that this beautiful calliope is unfolding all around you. That's the whole point of this whole thing. So you don't have to be tortured. To, it's easy to see that from a tortured place because as soon as like someone like stabs you in the leg and you're bleeding, you're like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> I'm going to die. You know, why did I why why was I so mean to my girlfriend when I walked out the door? You know what I mean? It, it's it, those are the I think that's why people feel like they got to be tortured. But the truth is, like, you know, you can you can just look at a bowl of fruit. If you look at it with your head tilted and your eyes squinted and a paintbrush in your hand in the, on the right day with the right light, it's right there all around you all the time. Wow. I feel like I've got a pocket full of kryptonite right now. <laughs> oh, you couldn't. You I couldn't, couldn't help you it. You had to do it, dude. Yeah. At least it's at the, at the end of it. What does that feel like anyway? It's, <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on anyone <laughs> to be totally honest. But, um, yeah, thank you so much to Chris for coming by. Please go see him tomorrow night at the Rockwood Music Hall Stage 3. It's going to be awesome. Um, yeah, check out... After this After this interview, I watched, like, Spintector's set from, like, Woodstock 94. There's so much stuff online. So it's, like, kind of interesting to hear him talk and then kind of go back and watch. Yeah. You forget. They were a big... They were a big deal, man. Big deal. Yeah, and it's cool. It's cool that Chris is still making music and still, um, yeah, really involved in the art. And he's got... Yeah, when he was here, he had just gotten back from, like, Alaska or somewhere yeah. crazy. Like, he does a lot of cool traveling. Really interesting guy. But definitely check him out on Twitter Instagram at Chris Barron. Um, if you get the chance to see him live, I would. And um, also check out Commonwealth Press. Commonwealth Press. Um, Commonwealth get Press. Get your t-shirts made. Get your t-shirts made. If you're in a band, you got to do it. Um, don't wait till the last minute. And uh, commonwealthpress.com slash podcast. Get six free shirts. And... Um, Thanks to them for sponsoring us. Thanks to Chris for coming by. Thanks, Brad, for Thank you. for having us. Thanks, Converse Rubber Thanks, Tracks. Thanks, Converse Rubber Tracks, for being so cool to us. For putting a roof over our heads. Yeah. I mean, if I had to do this on my own, it would probably sound terrible, and no one would be able to find it. probably sound like this. Hello? It would. We're skating in today. <laughs> Hello? Jonah? That is actually a sample of my original <laughs> podcast. Um, but yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, if you want to donate, go to goingofftrack.com. Stephen was telling me there's some kind of thing, button where you can just donate a dollar. It's really easy, I guess. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know exactly how it works, but check it out. I think if you just click on the donate button, it, it takes you right, it right there. It pulls it right out of your pocket. It pulls it literally like a hand comes out of your computer. Oh, that's right. We have a little dro- uh, drone now yeah. that flies to people's pockets. Totally. So check out the Going <laughs> Off Track drone. Um, leave us a comment on iTunes. If you don't want to give us any money, that's fine, too. Whatever. Tell your friends about it. Tweet about it. Or don't. We're going to keep doing it either way. So. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Chris, for coming by. And we will see you next week.